Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Praise the Lord. Turn with me to the book of Joshua, the 24th chapter. Joshua 24th. I began last Sunday on a subject uh, uh, in conjunction with baby dedication. We've dedicated, uh, what did you say, nine, eight, eight uh, uh, babies or children around here last uh, Sunday morning. And so I've talked uh, along the line of raising your child for Christ, how to ensure your child's salvation. Now, some people right away would, would raise their eyebrow in that and say, well, no man can say that you can ensure another person's salvation. Well, I want you to stay open to what I have to say because when it comes to a parent, a godly, Bible-believing parent, you can ensure your child's salvation. I said, as a godly, Bible-believing parent, you can ensure your child's salvation. And you, and you must do it and you must believe that because your, your child's salvation is in your hands to a large degree if you're a parent. And you say, well, I'm, I don't have children or I'm older and my children are grown or, or, or whatever the case might be. You have a part to play in helping others, helping parents, helping your, your own children raise their children. Uh, if you have nieces or nephews or, or just being in the, in the company of faith, in the local church together as a family, we need to believe these things that we believe together and stand with one another, amen? In Joshua the 24th chapter, very uh, famous or, or well-known statement in the latter part of verse 15, he's, Joshua said, as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, was Joshua just making just a, a big, bold, positive statement? Was he just speaking, you know, uh, uh, hopefully, in the sense that if I just say it, you know, with conviction and just declare it, you know, publicly, that'll make it so. No, this was a statement that Joshua made that the Bible records it, inspired utterance given by the Spirit of God. And in it, we have so much to learn. This was a statement of faith. Well, you can't make a statement of faith without a basis for faith. You can't just... You can't just say or believe anything and, and say, well, I'm saying it in faith, I'm claiming it in faith. There has to be a Bible basis for it or else it's just a pipe dream. It's just a spiritual air castle that doesn't have any, any substance, it has no power to bring it to pass. But when Joshua made this statement, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, he was saying that based on faith that came from God, he knew he had the right to say it. He knew he had the right to claim it. He knew he had the right to see it come to pass in his family's life. We also looked at Proverbs 22. Go over there and look at it. Proverbs 22, another very well-known passage of scripture, but often misquoted. Proverbs 22, six says, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Like I said before, I grew up hearing this verse of scripture in the church that I attended and most people I knew in other churches would use this verse of scripture but even though they would read it the way it's written, here's how they would actually 
uh, interpret it to themselves. They would interpret it this way, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Or if he does, because he might uh, depart from it, but if he does, he'll come back. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, that is when he's, when he's grown, he will not depart from it. This verse does not teach having your children backslide and go out and live in the world and sow their bad oats and, and uh, effectively wreck their lives and cause themselves grief that they'll experience for a lifetime. But then at some point in the future after having uh, seen uh, devastation, spiritual devastation, all kinds of marital problems and, and drug addictions and all those things, they just keep on holding on, parent, because this verse promises your child will come back. That's not what this verse promises. I'm, your child, you can believe for your child to come back, but that's not what this verse promises. This verse says they will not depart. That means they will embrace the Christian faith early and continue to embrace it all during their childhood, all during the teenage years, all during college, young adult, all during their life. They'll never depart from it. That's what this verse teaches. Amen. So um, uh, I want to look at this because there's, I, I looked in my notes and I found out that I haven't really taught about this aspect of faith in seven or eight years. And I think the last time I did it, I did it on a Wednesday in a series. And so a lot of people didn't hear it. This is uh, uh, something very few people understand and very few people and pastors ever teach on it. And because of that, you see a lot of devastation in family life. You see a lot of children growing up in church and then going the way of the world. It's because parents have not been taught the, the basis for believing God for their family. And, and it's so critical because as we're gonna see in these scriptures, it has always been God's plan. It Old Testament and New Testament continues to be God's plan that parents pass down their faith to their children. And, uh, and there should be a, a spiritual heritage and a godly heritage that goes from generation to generation. That's the plan of God. But if it won't, it won't just automatically happen if people don't know how to use their faith for it. And so that's what we've been talking about. And so I'm going to say a few things that I said last week just real quickly. If you weren't here, I'm not going to be able to say everything that I said last week today. Uh, I, I went into some particulars, some, some uh, sort of uh, specific uh, practical things last week that I won't be able to repeat this week. You need, if you weren't here, you need to go back and get the recording, download it or listen to it on your device or however. There's just many ways to do it. And listen to what was said last week because you won't get it the first time. How many of you know that to be true? You sit in the, the, the church service and you hear a truth and it, it resonates and you understand it, but then you hear it again and then you begin to understand it more. It begins to take on a greater revelation on the inside of you and, and the more you see and the more you understand, then the more you're able to uh, act on it and put it into practice in your life. So you, you, you don't get it the first time and so it's good to repeat some things, but I won't have time to go over everything. Uh, we pointed out this. Go back with me to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. 
And let's look at this simple concept that we're all familiar with. Genesis 1 verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and and the rest of the earth. Now, it says in verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him and he created them male and female and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion and so forth. When God said, let us make man in our image, this is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. When let us make man in our image, he wasn't just talking about the physical form of man. He was talking about the the triune nature of man, spirit, soul, and body. That we are, as human beings, we are the only beings and creatures on the earth that have uh, uh, the similarity. Now, listen to what I'm saying. We're not God, but we're created in his class. And I learned a long time ago when when I was early in the Word of Faith uh, 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 studies that there are always people out there who oppose certain truths and so they will go back and try to to, uh, make you or or make it sound like you're saying something you aren't saying, but they're they're dishonest when they do it. There are a lot of writers that would take words like Brother Hagin, things that he taught or different ones taught, and they would take a little snippet out of a sentence or maybe one sentence out of a paragraph and then portray it in a way that it was completely opposite if they just, if you know they either didn't listen to the whole message or even the, the whole statement or they're just liars because they completely misrepresented what was said. And so I'm, I'm always real careful to say that we're, we aren't God, but we were created in his likeness and, and there is a, a likeness of divinity in us. In other words, we have some characteristics that are God-like. We're not God, but we have spiritual likeness, a spiritual capability. In other words, we're in the same class that God is in, the same class of being. God is a spirit, we are spirits. Angels are also created in that class, but the difference between angels and man, angels no longer have the right to choose. They did it one time, but they no longer have the right to choose their destiny and their, and their obedience. You and I do. That is a divine privilege. That is a God-like characteristic. And so that's what I'm talking about when I say man was created in God's image and his likeness, not just physically, but his whole, the whole spirit, soul, and body nature of man. And so he said, let us create man in our image and in our likeness. And go over with me to the fifth chapter of Genesis. Verse one says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his, notice, begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Of course, this was after Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve had already had Cain and, 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 and uh, uh, Abel. And we know that Cain was a murderer and killed his brother Abel and it says here that, that Adam and Eve had their children after their own image and likeness. 
God could have, notice he, he created man in, in chapter five here in his image and likeness and called them mankind. Now God only physically created, directly created two people. He created Adam and from Adam then he also created Eve. Those were the only two people that he directly created by his own uh, action. But it says that he, he called them mankind. God created the rest of us through Adam and Eve. God gave Adam and Eve the ability to procreate, to, to pass on the creative uh, uh, ability that God had instilled in them to pass that on and raise up children in their likeness and image, both physically and spiritually. When God created Adam and Eve, they were right. They were righteous. They were holy. They were sinless. They didn't have any knowledge of either good or evil. They only knew the presence of God. But we know the story how sin came in. And when sin came in, the Bible says in Roman that, that through sin, death entered the world. And so disobedience brought sin and it brought spiritual death and spiritual death passed to every man through the actions of Adam and Eve because Adam and Eve passed down after they were given a, a, a holy nature, after they sinned, their nature had become corrupt and they passed that nature down to their children. So children are born, even though they're born spiritually from God and they're pure and alive, there's a nature in their flesh that always leads to sin and because everyone yields to that eventually in life, then all have sinned and all die spiritually. So that came, that came down through the family. I'm gonna say that again. That came down through the family. It was passed on and passed down through the family. And it's a very powerful thing to understand that God has given humanity, beginning with Adam and Eve, but extending right down to parents today. Just as much as, as Adam and Eve had this ability, you young parents, you have the ability to procreate and to raise up children for God. But the problem is you pass on to them a fallen nature. There's a sin nature in the flesh. And so eventually your child will consciously sin. He will consciously disobey his own moral compass, his own conscience, and when, and when that happens, he will die spiritually and will need to be born again. It happened to you. It'll happen to your children. It happens to everyone. So uh, the father begets his child in his own image just like God beget Adam in his own image. But the fall of man marred God's ideal for the family, as we've said. Now go with me to Romans chapter five and let's see something very marvelous that a lot of times we haven't thought about like we should. Romans chapter five. While you're looking there, let's go to... Uh, well, let's look at, before we go, you can turn to five, but we're gonna go over chapter, to verse 20, but before you do that, uh, or while you're doing that, consider this. God created man in his image and gave man the, the 
uh, divine prerogatives. See, we have certain prerogatives. We have certain abilities that are God-like. Again, lest anybody lie about what I'm saying. I'm not saying we're God, but just like, just like the will to choose is a God-like virtue and a God-like ability. The, the ability to procreate, to, to raise up children, to, to beget and to parent children is a God-like ability. Do you understand that? that, that the, parents need to teach that to their children when they're young. It would, it would uh, go a great way in, in protecting your child as a teenager from promiscuity. If they understand that that sexual relations and, 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 the, and the potential of having children is a very serious thing. It's a very holy thing, a very godlike thing. And it's not to be trifled with. But through this process, because man had fallen, the family then, the family unit, became the greatest contagion of sin in the, on the planet. Because it was through the family that sin was passed down. The, the fallen nature was passed down in the family. So the family, again, was sin's greatest ally. It was the, it was the stronghold that enabled sin to gain dominion over the whole human race. How did sin gain dominion over the whole human race? Through the family that God created for an opposite purpose, but it was through the family and, and the fallen nature of man that God's perfect and beautiful plan was marred. So sin has its greatest ally in the family unit. It's a terrible thing to consider, but it's absolutely the truth. In uh, Romans 5, verse 20, it says, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now notice the word where. Where sin abounded. Now the word where, one of the meanings of the word where means the location. It, all, it also can mean, the, it can mean the sphere of something is where it is. But it also means the location, the place, the location where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Well, if the family became the chief contagion, the chief instrument through which sin abounded in this world, then how is it then that, that how could it not be, let me say it this way, how could it not be so that the family can become the chief place that much more so can grace abound? Grace can much more abound in the family even more so than sin has abounded. And sin through the family took dominion in the, over the entire planet. And over everybody that's ever lived. Well, if Romans 5.20 is true, yeah. then there's a grace in the home. There's a potential for grace in the home to have even a greater effect to overcome and undo 
And if that's not true in the family, if there's not a special grace in the family, then there's an exception to Romans 5.20 and there is no exception. If Romans 5.20 says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. If it's true everywhere else, it has to be true right there in the family. Amen? Well, praise the Lord. That's good news. How could Romans 5.20 be true if sin alone had the power through the parents to gain dominion over the children? Couldn't be true if sin alone had the ability. No grace enters in. Oh, glory. Now go with me to Hebrews Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. And look at verse number seven. By faith, Noah. Now, I pointed out last week, and we're gonna go over and look at, at uh, Genesis, uh, in just Genesis chapter seven in just a minute. But I made this statement last week. If you look in the Old Testament, you see that, that man sinned, Adam and Eve fell. God immediately, in his grace and in his mercy, and in a uh, uh, reference to the coming Savior, said some things to, to Eve about her seed, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who would come. He uh, killed an animal, shed the blood of an animal as a covering for their sin and took the skins of the animal and clothed Adam and Eve. That was a redemptive act where Adam and Eve were concerned. But for the rest of humanity following Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, Seth, and their descendants, there was no redemptive, uh, there was no further redemptive action on the part of God for humanity until Noah's day. Came several generations later, uh, I don't know, 800, 900, maybe, no, about 1,000 years after Adam, and Adam had, really, Adam had just passed away in Noah's day. Adam lived almost up till, if if I remember right, somebody can run the, the uh, genealogy, if I remember right, Adam lived almost up until the day of Noah. And, uh, but in Noah's day, God, God, Noah's, what God did with Noah was his first great redemptive act for humanity and it, and it foreshadows Christ and the church, just like so many things in the Old Testament does. It says here, though, we'll go over and look at it, but let's get this verse first. Verse number seven, by faith, Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with fear, godly fear. Now notice, and prepared an ark for the saving of his household. That means his children. The saving of his household by which the faith that he demonstrated, by faith, he moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah's act of obeying God, moving with fear and obeying God was accredited to him as faith and as righteousness. And he did it for the saving of his household. Go with me now to Genesis chapter seven. Genesis seven. And let's look at 
Well, let's look at chapter six first. We mentioned this last week. This was the condition of mankind by the time Noah came on the scene. Uh, if you think the world is dark today, we're living, on, we're living in heaven on earth today in the worst neighborhoods in the world is heaven on earth compared to what was going on in Noah's day. Sometimes you see movies and they, they'll produce, you know, kind of depict this sort of dark gothic world, you know, where there's just, you know, madness and, and insanity and, and evil. I don't even know that that comes close to what the world was like in Noah's day. It says in, in chapter six, verse one, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them uh, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the spirit said, my, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man forever for he indeed is flesh yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And drop down to verse 11. It says, the earth also was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth indeed, and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. In verse number 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. But go back to verse eight, it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Now, it says that, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we know the story how God instructed Noah to build an ark and to bring his children into, into the ark. This shows us, and like I said, this was, this was God's first great act of redeeming grace on behalf of, the, of a sinful world. Noah and his ark is a type of redemption through Christ and the ark is a type of the church. When we're born again, we're brought into the church, into the body of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are God's own people and, and we are in a place of protection from the evil of this world. Of course, it, it, it all has to be by faith. We're supposed to, as Christians, uh, actually... This is what the Lord spoke today, I think, through interpretation, isn't it? It just occurred to me that God wants us to rise up and live above in a higher place. Now, that's, that's what the ark is a type of. Uh, the church is a place of, of blessing, of security, a place of protection where we live above, float above. Isn't that interesting the Lord said that? I hadn't even thought of that. Float above, live above the things of this world in a place of, that God has prepared. That's what the ark was a type of. 
Now, let's uh, see if I can find the verse here. I don't think I wrote it down in my notes. I'll find it. I'm looking for the verse where he told them to bring his children into the ark. Huh? Seven what? Did we read that? No, come on, help me out. So I'm here mumbling out there. (laughs) Come into the ark, you and all, yeah, I've already read it. You and all your, your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in your generations. We hadn't read that yet. Verse seven, chapter seven, verse one. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. This shows us several things. Number one, it shows us that the family was to be a fundamental instrument of God's grace. God's grace, Noah found grace, but the grace wasn't just for him, it was for his whole family. God regards the family as a unit. We use that phrase today, the family unit. God regards the family as a unit with the father as its head and representative. This is why the father, fatherhood, maleness is under so much demonic attack today and the world would want to degrade and and minimize is because God ordained the father to be the head and the representative over his family. The family had been sin's greatest or mightiest ally, the chief instrument through which it had acquired such universal domination. The family was now to be rescued from the dominion of sin and to be adopted into the covenant of grace. Let every Christian parent understand this. Now, by the way, I didn't understand all of this when I was a young parent. I just knew, I locked hold of Proverbs 22, 6. Raise up a child in the way he should go and when he is old, he will not depart from it. God graced me beyond my knowledge of the scriptures to lay hold of that scripture and I could not have explained to you how it works like I could, like I can now. But at that time, I just locked hold of that. Faith came to me. I laid hold of that verse. And I said to myself and my wife and I both, our children will live for God all the days of their life. They will not live an ungodly life. They will not backslide. They will not turn their back on God. They will come up in the church loving Jesus, living for God, being filled with the Spirit. And they'll, and they'll live in this all of their life. Like I said, I don't know everything I'm teaching now, but I, I just believe that verse. And see, that was scriptural because the verse is true and faith comes by hearing. You don't have to, you don't have to under, understand everything. Lock on to a promise of God and just don't take, don't take no for an answer. Amen. That was my position. Everything I'm teaching is in the book. I forget the name of it because my, my copy is older. What's the name of the book we give to parents now when they get... Raising Your Children for Christ. My copy is an older version, a slightly different name. But everything I'm teaching is in that book. So parents, that, that if, you've, if you've dedicated a child in the last uh, recent times, last couple years, you've gotten a copy of that book. All this is in there. It's a book by Andrew Murray. 
And it's a very powerful book. It was written many, many years ago. He was a giant uh, of a man spiritually recognized throughout the church, all denominations as just a tremendous man of God. All of this is in that book. Let every believing parent understand this. A righteous parent that is a Christian. Notice, notice he said, come into the ark. This is chapter seven, verse one. Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that your household is righteous. Is that what it said? No, it said, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. A righteous parent today that is a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. A righteous parent is dealt with not only as an individual, but also in his relationship as a parent. When God blesses, he loves to bless abundantly. It overflows to his entire house. Now, I got that from Andrew Murray. I didn't know that a long time ago. See if this is true in the New Testament. Go over with me to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7. See if we can find evidence in 1 Corinthians 7 and then in other places, in the book of Acts even. 1 Corinthians 7, talking about divorce and remarriage and so forth to the church at Corinth. And let's start in verse number well let's just start in verse number 10 because it's good to read. Now the, to the married I command yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Don't leave your husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, not I, not the Lord, but I say, to not, but to the rest, I, not the Lord say, if any brother, now listen to this, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, that means a man has a non-Christian wife. A man is a child of God, he's saved, but his wife is unsaved. If any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Now, when it says she is willing to live with him, that means to live with him in peace, live with him in, in uh, fidelity and loyalty, not run around and sleep with other men, okay? This is talking about a, a, because a, a woman who treats her husband that way or a husband who treats his, that, his wife that way is not willing to live with them. I don't care what he, he or she says. So that's, that you have to understand the context. Uh, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let her, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, that is a Christian woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her. Again, to live with her in, in, in fidelity and, and, and uh, uh, so forth. In other words, be loyal and be and be faithful, faithfulness. If he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now notice verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the children or by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. If, a, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. If the, let's go back to verse 14. If the unbelieving, husband is, the, the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, 
Now, what does that mean? Does that mean the unbelieving husband is saved by the wife? No. See, the word sanctified in the New Testament simply means to set apart from an unholy purpose and to separate from an unholy purpose and to set apart for God. It is used in connection with salvation. When we were saved, we were sanctified in the sense that we were separated from this world and we were set apart unto God. So sanctification has to do and, and, is, and has an application in the new birth, but the word itself doesn't necessarily have to be with the, with the new birth. It has an application there. It just means to separate and to set apart for God. So when it says here that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, he's not saved by the wife, but he is in a, a in other words, God shows favor to that husband. He is separated to a degree and set apart unto God to a degree. He enters into a, a favored status with God that's different than if he was married to an unsaved woman, just an unsaved man and woman. Because he's married to a Christian woman and he loves her and they have a good marriage and he wants to live with her and she loves him and wants to live with him, there is a sanctifying effect that envelops him and there's a favor over his life that there's blessing that comes his way and God work, will work in his life in a way that he's not working in somebody else's life by virtue of his wife. Does anybody see that? Can you see how that's worked in people you know? Absolutely. He says, uh, and the unbelieving wife, if, if the wife is the unsaved person, she is sanctified by her husband. She is in a, she is in a favored status uh, above other unsaved people because her husband's a Christian. There are blessings on their home that the, the unsaved husband and wife will receive blessings and be a recipient of blessing and favor because of the saved partner. Do you see that? Then he says, otherwise your children would be unholy. If that was not true, if, if, a, if a Christian woman was married to an unsaved man and they had a child, this verse says that that child would be unholy, be, be like a child out of wedlock. But because the unsaved husband is sanctified by the wife, that child then is holy, not, doesn't say the child is saved, it just says the child is in a, is in a different uh, 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 condition in the favor of God. That, that child is not looked at as being illegitimate, but a legitimate child because the wife or the saved partner it makes that, that difference in that child's life. Do you see what I'm saying? So you can see here in the New Testament that God deals with families through the faith of one. Through the saved status of a husband or a wife because that husband or wife is saved, God deals with their spouse and with their children in a special way that he's not dealing with the kids next door. Follow me? They're not saved, but God deals with them differently. There, you said it this way, there's a blessedness. There is a grace that's working in that home that's not working next door where the, nobody knows God. 
Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And let's look at verse number 17. Verse 16. The day of Pentecost, Peter preached and said, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come, he's, he's quoting from the book of Joel, the Old Testament prophet. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The only reason I'm reading this is to show you that in the covenant of God, there are blessings upon children because of their parents. This promise is not to the sons and the daughters. The promise is to the parents. I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh. Those of you upon whom I pour my spirit, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. In other words, the spirit will be poured out upon your children because of you. Go with me over to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, and let's look at verse, this of course is, Peter was retelling the story here of, of how he went into Cornelius' household. Peter's retelling the story before the uh, church in Jerusalem. And uh, verse 12, he says, the Lord told me to go with the people from Cornelius' house, doubting nothing. And, it, and uh, we entered the man's house, verse 13. He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, now here's what the angel said to Cornelius. Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore God gave them the same gift as he did, as he gave us when we first believed. Notice the promise to, that the angel gave to Cornelius is send to Joppa and he will send and, and find Peter. He will speak words whereby you and your children. Notice the promise was to Cornelius but it included his children. Now we understand the children had to believe. I'm not saying the children don't have to believe. What I'm saying is there was a, there was a promise to the children that not only would, would they, to the parent, not only would you be saved but your children. Do you see that? There was a promise there. Go over to chapter 16. Chapter 16. And let's look at verse number four, uh, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydda, Lydia was there who heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of, uh, of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart, her heart, to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. Now notice, the Lord opened her heart 
but he also opened the heart of her household. Can you see that? Go to verse uh, 31. This is in, in the Philippian jailer. The jailer, you know, they were feeling, uh, uh, Paul and Silas were in jail, God opened the jail. And uh, the jailer called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul, verse 29. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? He's thinking about himself. What must I do? They said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Then they spoke. Now notice, the household had to hear the word of the Lord. God doesn't just save your children just because you believe, but your faith, there's something in your faith that extends to your children. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Well, now when they had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. So you see how that's working. There's a grace that extends. God intends for the faith of the father and the mother to affect the children. It's his plan. For it to be otherwise is a failure. Not to be negative, I'm just saying the positive side of it, God intends it to be this way. Go to the 18th chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 18. Then Crispus, verse number eight, the ruler of the synagogue believed on the Lord with all his household. That's the way. And then go to 21, chapter 21, and look at Agabus, or Philip, rather. And uh, verse 21, 8 and 9, when they had finished our voyage, from Tyre, we came to, this is verse seven, greeted the brethren, stayed with them the next day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. We just see again that it's the plan of God. Here is a, here is a, a, a man who's a minister and evangelist, but his, his daughters are saved. Well, if you follow the pattern here, they were saved because of the influence of the parent. Amen. And then, of course, this is a real, real familiar passage, and this is in 2 Timothy. Everybody knows this one, but we'll read it. 2 Timothy. And let's look at chapter 1, verse number 5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, speaking of Timothy, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Well, how did, how did, that, how did that genuine faith get to him? It, get, it got to him through his parents and his grandparents. That's that godly heritage I'm talking about. The ark in which the parent, parent is to be saved is meant for the children too. It's for the, listen, it's for the parent's sake that it is for their children as much as for them. God gives a, a promise to the parent and it's for the parent's sake that it includes the children. Now it's also for the children's sake, but it's first of all for the parent's sake because the promise is given to the parent. 
You see that? The ark is to be the house of the entire family. God told Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household. That's not, a, that's not just a promise, that's a command. That's a commandment. The parent is to bring the children into the ark. Not leave it up to them to decide. Parents, you are not to leave it up to your children to decide whether they're gonna live for God. Now, your children must come to a day where they recognize their need of a Savior and in humility and in faith receive him as Savior, but you are not to leave that up to chance. You are to command your household. And see, the earliest time to believe for children is when they're really before they're born. If you're, if you're married, or even if you're not married, just looking to the future, you plan to be married one day and have children, start believing God for your family. The Bible says in Romans that, that Abraham was, well, a, a righteousness was appointed to him and accredited to him because of the faith he had concerning Isaac who was yet unborn. Okay? So start believing God for your children before they're born. Believe God from the moment they're born. The younger your children are, the easier these things are. Take charge of your life, of, the, of those lives that are given to you, parents. Take charge of them from the earliest moment. And the earlier you do that and the, and the more consistently you do that, the easier it is. Now, that doesn't mean that if you started late, there's no hope. That's not what I'm saying. The promises of God don't have a, 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 an expiration time stamp on them. There's no expiration. There's no time stamp. You can believe God for your children, especially as long as they're in your house. Now, when they become adults and go on their own, there's even uh, more problems that can arise. I'm just saying it's according to your faith, be it unto you. But do it when your children are very young because parents, when your children are tiny and very young, their wills, in effect, are in your hands to mold and to shape them. Now, their little unregenerate flesh will want to pinch and, and steal <laughs> The others, child, the others' toys in the nursery and hit each other. I mean, their flesh is unregenerate. And you know that there's gonna come a day they're gonna be born again. Just hold on to that, okay? Their nature's gonna change. <laughs> but all along, their, their will is so much in your hands to shape. Because you have authority and they recognize it never heard a, a one-year-old say, you can't tell me what to do. You're, you're, I can do what I want to. You, you don't own me. No, this is yes, mama, whatever you say. Yes, daddy, whatever you say. They understand you have authority. Use that authority for God. That's why I talked last week. Don't let attitudes, don't let your young, I'm getting over in the practical part of this today, but this, I'm, I'm out of time, so you know I can't stay long. <laughs> See, nobody's hit the door yet. You cannot allow attitudes to develop in your young children. You're supposed to stop that. You're supposed to, you're not acting that way. You go back to them and you smile and you apologize. And then they go back and go, no, you didn't do it right. 
I said, wipe those tears, put a smile on your face and apologize, say you're sorry and put a big old smile on your face. You know, they're doing their best. You have to do that because you're shaping. What you're doing is you're teaching them to overcome their flesh, to put their flesh. They don't know what you're doing. You a lot of times didn't know what you were doing. That's what you were doing. You were teaching them to overcome their flesh, to rule their flesh, to not let their stinking flesh govern their behavior. When you do that, you shape them and you mold them. Oh, parents, you are so powerful. You have such influence. Don't sit back and just say, well, I don't know why he's that way. He's that way because he needs you to to step up and do your job. Well, praise the Lord. Let me find a place to stop here real quick. Hallelujah. Well, let's stop. Praise the Lord. Come into the ark, you and all your household. Like I said, it's not only a promise, it's a command The parent is to bring the children into the ark and God has graced you to do it. That's the good news. God has graced you to do it. You as a parent, God as a righteous Christian parent, God deals with you and the promise where your family is concerned is upon you. I'll bring this out next time. Maybe we'll go into this. I hate doing this Sunday night but so many people aren't here but but. I'll give you a little foretaste of of maybe tonight. God told Abraham, he said, the Bible says that he chose Abraham so that Abraham would command his children. Abraham's, the, the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to Abraham were contingent upon Abraham's obedience. If Abraham didn't pass the blessing down to his child, Christ could not have come. Christ could not have come if Abraham had not passed the blessing down to his his child. So the promise was given to Abraham and Isaac was the recipient. Now, the the day came when Isaac had to believe the promise. But Isaac believed the promise because Abraham believed the promise. And God dealt in grace to Isaac through Abraham. He does that today. He'll deal in grace through you, godly parent, to your child, and he will bring your child to the place of personal faith. The child has to do it. Notice Noah found grace. I remember the day I found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I was in a little motel room in Brooksville, Florida, doing my best to renounce Christianity. That was my intention, was to prove the Bible was not so, that Jesus Christ was just a common man, if he ever lived at all, and there was nothing to the Bible, and I was was gonna just finally uh, uh, depossess myself of all religious influence. That was my intention. And so I opened up the Bible to prove God to be out a lie and came out saved (laughs) in fellowship with Jesus. That's finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. I had nothing to do with it. I said I had nothing to do with it. My intention was completely one way and God got a hold of me, not because I was looking for it, but because of my parents. Because of what my parents had put into me. 
Now, yes, I had to make a decision, but the decision was easy because grace had a hold of me. I mean, it was easy to believe and, and repent and confess uh, Jesus. It was easy to do that because I was seized by grace. Grace got a hold of me. Grace will get a hold of your kids if you'll live by faith. But you see, you have to believe this. And so many times in our religious experience, in our church experience growing up, parents believe that, well, it, there's a general connection between raising your children and there's a tendency they'll turn out, but a lot of them don't. And so we just, we're just hoping and praying that my child will one day be saved, that they won't fall away and go to hell. That's fear-based, it's not faith-based, and the devil wrecks havoc in families because of it. But somehow, God graced me as a young Christian, and I just laid hold of, of Proverbs 22, 6 like a bulldog. I said, this, is, this will come to pass in my life. It'll come to pass in my children and my grandchildren's lives. Amen. Oh, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Glory to God. I tell you, God's got this thing wrapped up. All we have to do is just obey. God is so much smarter than any of us. His ways are, are, are so already prepared, every question's answered, every difficulty's overcome, just do what he says. Just do what he says, it all turns out good. Amen, let's stand up, praise the Lord. Hallelujah, thank you Father, glory to God. Thank you Lord, thank you Lord, thank you Lord. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God, glory to God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Thank you, Father, for faith. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your plan. Thank you for the promise, the promise given to parents, the absolute certainty, the absolute certainty that our children can be raised and trained and never fall away, never fall away but that the things we know in this generation can be transferred to the next generation and they can build on those things. Should Jesus tarry that the next generation will have more faith, more revelation, more understanding, do greater and mighty things for you than, than any other generation that's ever come. That's your plan, Father. Glory to God, we lay hold of that. At Impact Family Church, it is our desire to see you blessed through the power of the Word of God. We have been helping people to change their world for over 25 years through our dynamic ministries and teaching. If you are going to be in the North Central Florida area and are interested in attending our services or just want more information about us, you can visit us online at www.impactfamilychurch.com.